Um, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are back in this great book of the Bible. Um, we took a break for the summer months. And so what I want to do this morning is just quickly recap the first half of the book. So hopefully you don't have plans today because we're going to be here all morning. Um, Because I know it was four months ago and you probably have all forgotten what the first eight chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about. And as we kind of continue on in chapter 9, you got to know what we've already looked at to make sense of the second half of the book. So... Um, The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, writes a letter. This is actually not his first letter to Corinth. uh, And he writes to this church in Corinth. Now, Paul's relationship with Corinth is he had gone there on one of his journeys. He had preached the gospel. Um, A church had been planted in the city of Corinth. Paul had stayed there 18 months, so for a year and a half, Paul had stayed in Corinth. He was a tent maker. Uh, if, you, if you know the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila were with him. They were tent makers. So he stays in this city for a year and a half, helps plant this church, and then he, he moves on. God calls him to, to go and plant another church in a different city. And so then he writes to this church. The, he hears, and we've, we've seen this in the first eight chapters, uh, someone had written him a letter. And he's hearing about all of these issues going on in the church. Lots of people look at the, birth, uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and they look at the church in Corinth, and they go, that's a really unhealthy church. Maybe they should just close the doors. But I, I actually don't think so. Here's why. The, the church in Corinth was maybe five years old when Paul wrote this letter. And the church in Corinth is made up of all brand new believers, So is it like really messy, which we've entitled our series? Yeah, it's super messy, but I don't necessarily think that that's a sign of unhealth. I think it's a sign of, man, people need to be discipled because they've been saved out of this culture that exists in Corinth, and they bring all of these things. So I give this um, example in our first week in Corinth. So we support some church plants in Quebec, and if you know Quebec is very, very under, I think it's like 1.5% Christian in the province of Quebec. And God's doing some really amazing things and churches are being planted. And one church planner shared that he uh, had a baptism and membership class for kind of new believers and they were baptizing tons of people. And so he uh, has this class and he gets up and one of his first things is, okay, you're followers of Jesus. And they're all new believers. And he says, you're not allowed to have sex with one another unless you're married. And all the new believers went, what? Because that's just, that's what the world says. We're, we're brand new Christians. Really? That's, and they went, okay, I guess if that's, if that's what God says, then we'll, we'll do that. That's kind of like Corinth, right? You're saved out of all of this depravity. And then Paul's writing going, no, no, no. What are you guys doing? Don't live like that. So you have to know Corinth, the city of Corinth was a city just swimming in depravity. Um, they were very pluralistic. There was, there was so many different gods that were worshipped in Corinth and different temples that you could go and you could worship Baal and you could worship Zeus and whatever. You could worship, take your pick, very pluralistic. And as long as you were just kind to all the other religions and all the other gods, that's fine. You can worship Jesus, just worship all the other ones too. Very pluralistic, very worldly, very wealthy and a, a, a highly sexualized city. Um, one commentator said, if you took New York, L.A., and Las Vegas and kind of rolled them into one, that's Corinth, right? So that's, think about that. 
Now people are being saved out of that. And this church is five years old and they're going, well, how do we follow Jesus? So no wonder it's messy and Paul is pulling his hair out because he's trying to disciple these people. Um, We've seen that the big issue in Corinth, um, the first eight chapters, the, the big overriding issue was pride. Um, the people in Corinth thought that they were better than other people because that was a cultural thing. You just want to climb the social ladder and I worship this God. And if you remember, I follow this speaker and I, I saw this speaker live in person at the Colosseum and ooh, I'm better than you. And so that had kind of crept into the church. I have more wisdom than you. And we'll see that in a little bit. Your spiritual gift is, is administration or, or prophecy. Mine is tongues. So I must be better than you. And so pride was really ruining the, the church. And so what Paul does in the first eight chapters that we notice, he, he, um, he unpacks what does true wisdom look like. He talks about playing favorites in the church, right? Some were like, uh, uh, we're team Paul, and we're team Apollos, and we're team Peter. And Paul's like, who are we? We're nobodies. Why are you picking teams? Um, we talked about um, that there was a case of incest going on in the church, and the church just in their pride had thought, well, it's because we're so, we're so spiritually mature, we can allow those types of things to happen. And Paul's like, what? No, kick that guy out of the church. Uh, we talked about lawsuits. They were suing each other for different things because I'm better than you and I'm going to take you to court, dragging brothers and sisters in Christ to court. Paul addresses marriage and singleness and divorce, which we looked at, because even their pride was kind of creeping into that. I think it's actually more holy to be single. So all you, you're married? Oh, well, I'm single and I'm abstinent, so I'm just a little bit better than you. And then some married people were going, well, if that's the case, well, I'm going to divorce my spouse so I can be single and holy too. And then some people were saying, well, I'm a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian, so I'm going to divorce them because they're, make, they're dragging me down. And so Paul addresses all of this. No, singleness, marriage, both blessed by God. Stop playing this pride game. Now, we left it off in, in, in the month of April uh, looking at chapter 8. And chapter 8, Paul is addressing what, what we would call disputable matters. If, do you, does anyone remember the word in Greek? What is it? Adiaphora. So you need to know that word as a, as a follower of Jesus. We want everything to be black and white. What I believe is right, what you believe is wrong. Black and white, and there's actually a whole nother category in the Bible. There's right and there's wrong, and then there's adiaphora. There's disputable things that aren't right or wrong. It's your personal choice. And so Paul brings up the idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. And again, people were playing this game of like, you can eat food sacrificed to idols, you can't, you're not allowed to. And Paul says, well, it's actually adiaphora. You can eat food sacrificed to idols or you can't. It doesn't really matter. You have freedom in Jesus. But he ended chapter 8 by saying, embrace the differences among us, these disputable things, but don't use your freedom to tear others down. And then if you look in chapter 8, verse 13, this is where we left off. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And I'm like, please, Lord, don't call me to that. (laughs) It's just too delicious. But 
But Paul says, yes, you have freedom. Meat sacrificed to idols, not a big deal. But Paul says, but if me eating meat sacrificed to idols makes my brother stumble, I'll just never eat meat again. Right? Don't use your freedom in Jesus to tear other people down. Now, chapter 9, um, it's not in the text, but you can almost hear the church's eyes all roll. <sighs> okay, Paul. I will never eat meat again. And everyone in the church goes, right, okay, buddy. You're being a little bit dramatic, Paul, right? Like, are you serious, Paul? You would never eat meat again. Now, what Paul's going to do in chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, he's actually going to use himself as an example. It's like he anticipates the eye roll. And he goes, let me use my own life and as an example of how someone can lay down their freedoms and their rights for the sake of the gospel. So he's, it's, like a, it's like Paul's saying, here's a living example. Look at my life. So what we're going to see in, in the first 18 verses of chapter 9, Paul's going to say, first of all, that he has rights as an apostle. Uh, and he actually gives five reasons why he has rights as an apostle. So let's look at that first, starting in verse uh, one, five reasons. The first reason is this, Paul has rights because he is an apostle, right? He starts by saying, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you, the church, my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So the first reason Paul says, hey, I have rights, and specifically you can kind of pick it up. He has the right to have his food and drink covered by the church. Don't I have a right to have food and drink? Uh, he has the right as an apostle to take along a wife on his missionary journeys, uh, expensed to the church. I should be able to, to do that. And he has a right to, to um, receive a, a working living from the church. He, he says, like, don't all the other apostles get to do this, right? Uh, Peter and the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, they take along their wives on their journeys they get money from the church to support them. And so Paul says, I'm an, I'm an apostle. Now, all of these uh, rhetorical questions that he asks, they're written in a way in the original language that um, every answer is supposed to be a yes. He's not actually asking where they go, oh, I'm not sure, right? So he says, am I not free? The answer is yes, of course, Paul. Am I not an apostle? Yes, of course you are, Paul. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, of course you have. Are not you my workmanship? He's saying, like, the church in Corinth, the fact that I came and preached the gospel and you believed, you're like, you're living proof that I'm an apostle. And then, like, do I have the right to eat and drink? Yes, of course, Paul. Do I have the right to take along a wife? Yes, of course. Do I have the right to, to make a living through preaching the gospel? All of those rhetorical questions are meant to be answered, yes, Paul, of course you have the right. So being an apostle is the first reason that Paul has these, these rights to food and drink and having the church pay, pay him to be an apostle. The second reason Paul has rights we see in uh, verse 7, and it's just common sense. It's the social norm. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Right? Don't you love that Paul's just like, hey, look around the world. This is just how the world works. Like if you were a soldier, let's say, you signed up to be a soldier and they said, great, glad to have you on board. We're going to go fight this war. By the way, you have to bring all your own food and you have to cook it yourself. And you have to pay for all of your own. Like, we don't have a a spear and a shield and a sword for you. You have to bring your own. You'd be like, that doesn't make any sense, right? If you're a soldier, obviously, you get your expenses covered. Uh, Someone who plants a vineyard uh, without eating any of its fruit. Like, if you owned a vineyard and you were going to check the fruit, should I have a few grapes for my, sure, of course you should. Right? Or a, a, a shepherd uh, who has a flock and they're milking the flock and he goes, I'm not allowed to drink any of the milk. No, of course you can. Of course you should. I was thinking about like putting it in our day and age. And I'm like, should you take office supplies from your... No, don't do that. <laughs> right? But, but uh, I was thinking of Stan actually cutting meat and he's like, one for you and one for me. Don't do that, Stan. But he says, look around the world, common sense, right? A soldier gets his expenses covered if you're a farmer, you can eat from your crop. If you're a shepherd, have some of the milk from the cattle that you own, right? So just common sense would argue, yeah, Paul should have some rights. Um, thirdly, third reason why Paul has rights is it's actually in the Old Testament law. Um, starting in verse 8, he says, do I say these things on human authority, right? Is this just me talking, Paul says? Does not the law say the same, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, where there was an Old Testament law that basically animals could eat while they work, right? So the threshing floor, they would put the grain on, and then the ox would kind of tread on it to break it apart, and if the ox would bend down and eat some of the grain, uh, God said in the Old Testament, that's fine, let them eat while they work. Now, I find it hilarious that Paul then says, and people who work in the church are like oxen. I'm like, ouch, (laughs) right? But he says, okay, the law is about animals, but it's actually so much more than that. Paul says the principle behind it, right? God's not just talking about ox, right? The principle behind it, and he says that the plowmen should share and the thresher should share in the crop. So those who then sow spiritual things, right, for those who get up and preach the gospel, should they reap material benefits from it? Meaning, like, should they get paid for it? And Paul seems to say, yeah, they should. Pay them to do that. The Old Testament law applies to humans as well. So let's recap. Paul has rights because he's an apostle, because common sense would say that he has rights, because the Old Testament law says that he has rights. And number four, if you kind of jump down to verse 13, uh, the example of the priests also show that Paul has rights. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? 
And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So even in the Old Testament law, the priests who would work in the, the temple and in the tabernacle, when someone would come, and you can re- read about it on your own time, but then they would you know, boil the meat and then the priest would stick the fork in and whatever came on the fork, okay, that's my portion, right, so that I can eat and be fed. And so Paul says, look, even the priests, they got paid for their work. So Paul says, so shouldn't we? Shouldn't I have rights as well? And then lastly, the fifth reason is that Jesus' own teaching affirmed that those who labor in the gospel should receive pay for that. Uh, It says in this, in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So when did Jesus say that? If you go, wait, when did Jesus say those who proclaim the gospel should make their living by the gospel? And there's two places. If you remember when Jesus sends out his disciples in Luke 10, 7, and 8, this is what he tells them. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Right, So Jesus said, when you go to someone's house and you are preaching the gospel and they give you food, go ahead and eat it. The laborer deserves his wages. Uh, Matthew 10, he says it again in in a slightly different way, verse 9 and 10. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the, the laborer deserves his food. So Jesus was saying, you don't have to take all of these supplies with you because you going to preach the gospel, you're going to receive food from that. You'll be taken care of. So I find it so interesting. Paul, he's, he's talked about rights and freedoms, and then he says, and I also have these rights and freedoms, right? Five reasons why. I have rights as an apostle to be paid by the church, to receive food and drink from the church, to have my travel expenses covered by the church. But Paul's second point then is he may have these freedoms and rights, but he doesn't use them. So verse 12, if you jump back up, the second part of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Um, Jump down to 15, he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Right? Paul's saying, I'm not writing this to to guilt trip you, Okay, well, now we got to pay Paul. He says, this is not my point. He says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? What is Paul's reward that he can preach the gospel and not be paid to do it? He says that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Isn't that interesting? He says, I can, I can present the gospel free of charge so that I don't have to use my freedom and my right to charge. Isn't that incredible? Like He says, that's the right in the gospel. I, I can get paid, but I choose not to. Now, is Paul saying that the other apostles are sinning because they accept money? No. The whole example is what? Is adiaphora. 
disputable matters. Notice that Paul never says, okay, the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, they get benefits from preaching the the gospel and they're sinning because of it. He goes, no, that's their right. Paul says, that's my right. I should get paid too. But I would rather die than get paid. Very dramatic. Again, I love Paul. (laughs) I would rather die than ever get paid. It's so great. But notice, Paul is not slamming the other apostles. He's not saying, I'm better than them because I don't get paid for for preaching. He goes, no, it's adiaphora, it's disputable. And I love that he lays out, these are, this, is, this is Paul's conviction. I have all, of, all access to the right and freedom of getting paid as a minister of the gospel, but he says, my conviction is that I would rather die than be paid so that I can just present the gospel free of charge. Now, maybe you're asking the question, well, what would be the stumbling block he talks about in verse 12? Right? He says, I would rather, I would, uh, we, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way. What, what would be the obstacle? Think about Corinth. What would be the obstacle if Paul expected to be paid by the church? Uh, Most likely, the pay would come from wealthy people who would then most likely expect favors from Paul. Or it would just feed into the pride issue already. Hey, we're the ones who pay Paul's salary. We're the ones that funded his trip. So you guys, you kind of poorer class in Corinth, you can come to church, but just know that we're just a little bit better than you. Because Paul, he's on our bankroll. Right? That would be a stumbling block. Or if you think about it, maybe potential converts would have shied away from converting if they suspected that it came with strings attached. Think about the traveling speakers that we talked about of the day, right? There were professional orators who would come to town and they they preached uh, on wisdom and on different topics and then they would expect to be paid for their services. Maybe Paul says the stumbling block in Corinth would be if I came and expected to get paid, everyone would say Paul's just like all the other professional speakers. He's just doing it for money. So Paul says rather than put a stumbling block and hindering someone from believing the gospel, I'm just going to choose to make tents on the side so that I can just come and present the gospel. And if people come and say, well, how much do we owe you for speaking? He goes, you owe me nothing. So notice, Paul, he's appealed to us. He's appealed to mature Christians in chapter 8. He says, you need to be able and willing to give up something that you're entitled to. Right? You should be willing to, I'm actually going to lay aside my freedom for the sake of my brother or sister. And now what he's done is that he's explained that exact scenario in his life. He's reflecting on his own life and his own renunciation of his own rights as an apostle because he doesn't want to put obstacles in the way. And, and but basically what he's saying is, see, there's an example. You can actually do this, church in Corinth. You can lay aside your rights. Look, I've done it, Paul says. So two, two points of application for us this morning. Because you go, okay, Paul uses his own life as an example. How does that apply to me? So I have two, two points of application. One is a statement, and then one is a question just for you to chew on as you leave. So here's the first. Um, the gospel is more important than you. The good news of Jesus, people hearing it and believing it, is more important than you. And you're like, I didn't come to church to hear that. 
Um, unfortunately, we live in a world of narcissism and ego and pride. I mean, we're just like Corinth. Our world is so narcissistic because we think that we are the most important people in the world. The world revolves around me. I'm the most important person. And think about the, the culture that we live in, the idea of self-love, and no one can ever offend me. I must never be offended by anything that anyone ever says, because then I'm triggered and I'm going to cancel you, because how dare you offend me? Do you understand how narcissistic that is? And like, now you must call me by certain things, or else I'll be offended that you didn't call me by the right thing. That is the definition of narcissism. And that's our, our world. Our world says that you are the most important person in the universe. And unfortunately, that kind of thinking has, has crept into the Christian world. And you hear sermons and teaching about how you are the most important person in the kingdom of, of God. And you hear word of faith and prosperity teaching, which is like, you are just like Jesus. Jesus wasn't special. You can be everything that Jesus could be, and you can co-create with God and, and, and speak your being into existence. And God wants you to always be healthy and happy and wealthy because you deserve it. You're so important. Here's some um, quotes from real sermons. Heaven bankrupted itself just for you. Here's a quote. I quote, you are never going to let someone love you more than you love you. So if you don't love you, you're definitely not going to let somebody love you. End quote. Uh, sermon title, quote, you were born to be amazing. End quote. And listen, if, you've sw if you swim in the culture of self-importance and narcissism, some of you might be going, well, what's wrong with any of that? Am I not meant to be amazing? Does not the world revolve around me? So listen, I have to tell you, I love you enough to tell you, you are not the center of the universe. You just aren't. And the reason that that's actually in love, I tell you that, is because if you think like that, it will destroy you. It will inevitably lead to narcissism and pride and ego. When things go your way, you'll begin to believe the lie that I am the most important person. And then it will, it will inevitably destroy you when things in life don't go your way. Because you'll go, wait a second, I thought I was the most important person and now I have cancer. And now I'm going bankrupt. And now my, my spouse and I, we're, we're fighting. Wait a second, if I'm the most important person, then why are these things happening to me? Um, many of you who have kids, um, I'm going to give you some free parenting advice, okay? Because um, uh, this just kind of comes naturally to kids in their sinfulness, is that they think that the world revolves around them. And I have three young kids, nine, uh, eight, and four, and the way that they fight and bicker with each other, it's because how dare this other person assume that they should get the toy rather than me? Don't they know who I am? And so we often, uh, this is a free of charge, a thing that you can say to your children, which helps is to remind them, hey, you're not the most important person in the world. I say that like weekly to my children. The world, the world just doesn't revolve around you. It just doesn't, right? And so, but as adults, we have to hear that. 
over and over and over again because we begin to believe the lie. I am pretty special and I am pretty amazing and why doesn't my spouse see that, right? I am incredible, right? And, and yet what Paul would say in chapter 9 is actually there's something far more important than you and me, the apostle Paul, more important than anyone and it's the gospel. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the most important thing. Right, even 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says that those who live, he's talking about followers of Jesus, that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So how do you do that, right? Again, like we're just bombarded with these messages of we are the center of the universe. Um, there, there's an incredible freedom that comes when life has purpose actually beyond you. And some of you have experienced that when you actually kind of shake your head and get out of this self-obsessed world that we live in and you realize that there's actually way more purpose beyond just me. Unbelievable freedom. Do you know why you shouldn't be the center of the universe? Because you're not God. It'll wreck you. <laughs> um, years ago, Tim Keller wrote a great little booklet called The Freedom of self forgetfulness and in it he basically talked about this issue of pride and ego and as followers of Jesus what do we do he says self self forgetfulness is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself it's just thinking of yourself less so don't hear me say that now we walk around and I'm a garbage human being and I'm not worth anything no 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 because you're still obsessed with yourself Self for, the freedom of, of just self-forgetfulness is going, I don't have to think more about myself, and I don't have to think less of myself. I just stop thinking about myself. Um, this is a quote from its book. It's great. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Um, some of you who have made yourself the center of the, the universe, I know that you're exhausted. I know that you are. Because... It takes a lot of work to run the universe. <laughs> and there is an unbelievable blessing when the weight of that is actually lifted off of you and you go, I, don't, I actually don't even have to think about myself. Gospel humility is I can actually think about others. I can actually put um, all the, the, the weight into other people and care for people. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he talks a little bit about this. And he says, how you know a truly gospel humble person is when you leave a conversation, you go, they were actually more interested in me than in themselves. Right? When you have conversations with people and you go, they, they didn't even talk about themselves. They just asked me questions and they wanted to hear about what was going on in my life. Right? So when you're not the center of the universe, you go, I don't have to talk about myself and think about myself. I can actually just invest in everybody else. Like It is so freeing. To know that the gospel is more important than us. Think about Corinth. This was a church that was obsessed with status. 
obsessed with climbing the ladder and being better than everybody else. And so I think Paul's example is meant to go, actually, you're not the most important person. Jesus is, the gospel is more important than you. Now, here's the question to wrestle with as we leave. In pursuit of your rights and freedoms, are you hindering the gospel? Um, in pursuit of you saying, hey, I can eat meat, sacrifice to idols, I know that example is outdated. But in the pursuit of, hey, I have freedom in Christ, I can enjoy alcohol, I have freedom in Christ, I can, whatever, fill in the blank. In your pursuit of, which Paul would say, those are your rights and freedoms, absolutely. But in pursuit of them, are you actually hindering the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about salvation issues, but am I making it hard for people to come to know Jesus by me pursuing the rights and the freedoms that I have? Or even not just um, new believers, but for my brothers and sisters, if you look around the room, in my pursuit of the freedoms that I'm allowed, am I making it harder for them to follow Jesus? Um, we, we used some examples when we looked at chapter 8. Um, like if I, if I, as a follower of Jesus, am totally fine with having a glass of wine with dinner, and I invite a brother or sister over who I know struggles with that, is it loving for me to say, well, you have freedom in Christ, drink up. Why can't you just be more like me? Why should I have to sacrifice a good glass of wine with my steak because you don't realize your freedom? You're actually hindering the gospel when you live like that. Rather than going, well, I'm not the center of the universe. I can actually just have water tonight. Right? And I could give dozens of examples, but I won't. But think about your own life. The entertainment that you can consume, the things that you go out and do, you have freedom. But always in the back of your mind, it should be, am I making it easier or harder for other people to follow Jesus? Um, your knowledge and rights and freedoms, they, they have to be directed by love for others and concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Now, and can I just tell you, like even as your pastor, like I struggle with this because I'm like, why should I have to sacrifice just because they aren't as far along as I am? And then I remind myself, right, I'm not the most important person. But it's hard. Like, it's really easy to stand up here and say, yes, you all should sacrifice for one another. It's really hard. It is. I get it. But to go, okay, knowing what I know about what Jesus has done for me, when I am captured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that I can go, yeah, you know what? I can give that up if people know what I know. If they can come to know Jesus, like Paul says, I will never eat meat again. I will never drink alcohol again if it means that more people can discover what I have discovered about Christ. Like when you're captured by Jesus and he changes your heart, more and more it becomes easier to say, you know what, I can, I can lay down that right. It's actually not a big deal. I'll end with this. Galatians 5, Paul puts it this way. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. There is unbelievable freedom that comes with following Jesus. But then he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But what's more important? Through love, serve one another. Celebrate the, the freedom that you have. But what trumps that is through love, serving one another. 
So I, I hope you wrestle with that this week. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just prodding you a bit going, yeah, that thing that you pursue as your right and your freedom, you actually need to lay that down because it's hindering people from hearing the gospel and believing. So Father, I thank you for your word. Um, it's always good to study it. And Holy Spirit, we just are so grateful that you speak to us through it. Um, God, I thank you that all of us who are followers of Jesus have incredible rights and freedoms. Um, Jesus, you came to set us free. Set us free from sin and set us free from the weight of trying to earn our own salvation. But God, forgive us when we then take that and think that we are the center of the universe and that the only thing that matters is my rights and my freedoms, God. Forgive us for that narcissistic attitude that I know I can have. God, I pray that we, even this week, would be willing to lay down our freedoms and rights so as not to put a stumbling block in front of people who need to hear the gospel. I pray that we would be so captured by your life, death, and resurrection that we would be willing, like Paul says, to just lay, to lay down everything. That we would go, actually, it's not worth that freedom because I want more and more people to come to know Jesus, to come to know the Savior that I know. I am willing to lay down everything for that. So God, guilt won't produce that kind of change. We need your spirit to produce that kind of change in us. So I pray that even this week, for all of us in this room, you would begin to change our hearts so that we would realize that the gospel is what is of most importance. Jesus, you are at the center of the universe, not us. And that because of that, we would feel an unbelievable weight taken off, that we would just pursue self forgetfulness and just the freedom that comes with not thinking about ourselves all the time. So help us to live like this, Father, this coming week. And so we just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.